Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Well, hello. I'm doing something a little bit different today. I'm bringing you behind the scenes as I record the intro to our AI Arthritis Voices 360 talk show episode that's going to air this Sunday on July 4th. Just thought, hey, why not give you a little bit of behind the scenes of how this works? Now, the show itself will be an excerpt of a video of recording that we did that is on YouTube. The cool thing about the show is even though it'll air the segment on audio, there is going to be also a video version of it, an uncut version that you can watch a longer version, if you will. So I thought, why not do a behind the scenes and have me actually do the announcement? So I don't know, just something a little different. So here we go. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich-Robertson. I am the CEO of the organization, but I am also a person living with an AI arthritis disease. Well, really plural, but the main one is axial spondyloarthritis, the non-radiographic version. And I am setting up the show for today. So it's an, it's an interesting one. If you've been following the show, you may know now that we air one show on Sundays, the first Sunday of every month. And it's going to be one of two things. <laughs> it's either going to be bringing an issue to the table and putting it on the table. And that's what we call step two in our six-step process at our organization. We identify an issue on step one by talking with people living with our diseases. Then on step two, we put it on the table and then we invite other people to have a conversation. Also, it might be a step five. So after we have the conversation, we go back, we talk to more people living with the diseases, more stakeholders that are involved in the problem we're trying to tackle. We come up with some potential solutions, then we put it back on the table. We continue the conversation in step five. So this is sort of a mix of both. What we're going to talk about today, or I'm going to actually set up, and then you're going to hear a segment that I did with Deb Constein. There were actually a couple others on the debrief that you can see in the video. Shout out to Katie and Patrice, but you won't hear them actually in this segment because, well, they didn't talk during the segment. I guess Deb, Deb and I hogged it all. But you're also going to hear recurring guest, Dr. Al Kim or Dr. Al or just Al. And also Dr. Jeff Sparks or Jeff. And as Al told us, also Sparky. So that was a new one. Anywho, we are going to today visit this segment from a larger recording that we did about a week ago. So the whole uncut version is on our YouTube channel. 
the topic that we were focusing on was communication with rheumatologists. So you do have to watch the whole video because it is rather funny. One of the things we do at our organization is every year we go to conferences. We go to many, but there's two in particular that are scientific. The American College of Rheumatology, which is usually around November, and then ULAR. And that is the European Scientific Congress, and that usually happens in June. Now, we tend to go in person and then have another team helping us remotely, but with COVID, it, it was all online. So what we do is we attend the sessions that we feel are most important to our mission, that will be information that our community needs and wants, and then we report back. So they're patient-led debrief sessions and we invite you to ask questions and communicate with us so you know you can learn with us and for the first time since it was on communication with all the sessions that were with communication and rheumatologists and also covid and vaccinations i sort of set up a little surprise for the other co-hosts and we had rheumatologists the ones that i mentioned actually zoom bomb our debrief so it was a pretty funny and again it won't be in this episode but it is in the full uncut version on our YouTube channel. What we're going to focus on this one is the communication part as far as the office visit, which is a step five. That is a revisit. We did touch on that in our first Roomy Rounds, which is a segment of our show that brings rheumatologists and patients to the table as equals. So that's why we say Al. We don't say Dr. Kim or Jeff and not Dr. Sparks. It's all first name basis. And we communicate about issues that maybe don't come up in an actual office visit. So we're trying to solve problems. And the one that we talked about then was communication in the office visit and what doctors prepare for, what patients prepare for, and how those end goals unite. So you might want to go back and check that one out as well. We revisit that and we also revisit COVID and vaccinations, which Al and Jeff were on another episode with Vivica Strand, another amazing rheumatologist in February of 2021. And we wanted to update. And Jeff had an abstract that was an award winner at ULAR on the research that he's doing with the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance or GRA. And Al has amazing research at WashU, Washington University, right here in my backyard. Al is my rheumatologist as well. I do go to WashU, so shout out to WashU. They do amazing work and they're doing amazing research on autoimmune diseases and vaccinations and COVID. And so they give a little bit of an update. That's what you're going to hear next. The other part of this is it is a first in a way because we are announcing a brand new project that's going to tie all of this together. If you've listened to the show, you've been a follower of the show, you know our organization is super invested in shared decision-making, which is the process of being informed or educated on a topic, typically about your health care, your health management um, regimen, and then the ability to speak to your doctors and come up with a solution for your health care. And often that will involve family members as well. So we did submit for a grant to help with the shared decision-making process specifically to COVID and vaccinations, and then be able to carry on those lessons in communication to help people have that voice in the doctor's office. And 
whether it's COVID or vaccination or other treatment decisions or clinical trial decisions or whatever that decision may be, opening up that dialogue. So we want to give a shout out to Johnson & Johnson, J&J, for granting that grant. And we're really excited to get that started. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Mr. Ryan, one of our amazing producers. And he is going to loop you in to the segment of our debrief from our go-to ULAR with myself, Deb, Al, and Jeff. So COVID has come into play. <laughs> very, Always very, Yes. <laughs> I mean, for the world, but I mean, here in rheumatology, you know, has definitely come front and center. So I thought, you know, as we're talking about the shared decision-making and understanding COVID and, you know, the vaccination, I thought maybe, you know, Jeff, you had an awesome abstract that award winning that um, from the, the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. I thought maybe, you know, you could tell us a little bit about sort of the key takeaways, because I think that ties in here, too. I mean, we need to communicate those back to patients and having this knowledge. How does that affect the visit? So I'm going to turn it over to you, Jeff, to give us a little overview. Well, sure. I think we were trying to approach, you know, something that I get asked about all the time. And that is, how are my medications, you know, how could those affect my COVID course? And, you know, we've actually been thinking about doing a study probably from the very beginning of the GRA. And part of it's that we wanted to do it in a single disease where all the drugs that we were studying are really, you know, being considered for treatment for that disease. So, for instance, if we had lupus patients, you know, it's a different menu of medications, So that's why we really stuck with rheumatoid arthritis, and certainly it's one of the most common systemic rheumatic diseases. We also limited the menu only to kind of the advanced therapies, biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs, which are JAK inhibitors, just because we kind of want it to be a bit of more of a fair playing field as far as, you know, really you start methotrexate at the very beginning of rheumatoid arthritis and it's just a different disease state. So we really wanted to get people in a kind of similar disease state. So we limited to those medications and we basically asked a pretty simple question is if you were on those medications at the time you got COVID, were there differences in how severe the COVID course was related to getting hospitalized, getting oxygenation, ventilation, and unfortunately dying. And what we saw is that the most common drug was the tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, the TNFs. And we compared all of the drugs to that drug class. And we found that patients who were on rituximab were at increased risk of severe outcomes, which is something we probably expected because that is probably the drug that impairs the viral defenses the most. The other class of drugs that we found was the JAK inhibitor class, which was a bit unexpected. This hasn't really been broached yet, And we found that it was associated with more severe outcomes. And this has been even more interesting because in the general population, there's now been several trials that show that JAK inhibitors can actually treat COVID. So this really deserves a lot more study and replication, but certainly taking it at the moment you get infected versus choosing to treat someone, you know, when they're in the hospital sick, needing oxygen are are a bit different. The other classes of drugs were betacept and interleukin-6 inhibitors, and those really had no difference between the TNF inhibitors. So that's the uh, short version of our abstract, at least. So that's interesting. This just came up in a a patient group like this week, 
I had made a comment about the steroids and that, you know, some of the early research and showing that there are poor outcomes. And that's why the rheumatologists were trying to, you know, get down to a lower dose. And somebody was very argumentative <laughs> to say, well, co- well, steroids save people with COVID. And I had to try to explain that that same sort of continuum that you're talking the phase nine, 10 COVID that they'll come in. But it is ironic that some of the, yeah. the treatments we're seeing, just like the JAK inhibitors that, that's coming in to help. It's very strange how in the early phase, it's, it's, it's just different. Yeah, it's a matter of timing. And immunology is very complicated, as Al can uh, attest to. And yeah, I think, I, you know, again, it really makes me want to vaccinate everyone, which is a good segue to Al's work, honestly. For sure. I mean, I've read a lot of your publications, which are amazing, especially for folks like me that I'm part of the John Hopkins study that they're mm-hmm. testing antibodies. It's so reassuring to actually, again, don't love the outcome, but it's reassuring. And for what's to come. And I, I'm just anxious to see where things come because I'm I'm one with very low antibody levels at this point. So anxious to see where this all comes. Yeah. So I want to finish a couple of thoughts about Jeff's work because this is really the the the, you know, the Rosetta stone for understanding, you know, the kind of the correlates of immune arm activation that's required for you know, outcomes, you know, changing outcomes in COVID-19. And Jeff hit, hit it on the spot. This is all timing. And it's not about the confusion about the therapies to me. It's more that COVID-19 is so unique in that it is the inflammatory environment it creates in the late stages, the more advanced, severe stages is really pronounced for any virus infection. And so that's where it's a little bit confusing. So definitely early on, you know, you get rid of B cells. We know antibodies are important for control of early COVID. There's really great work from Ikuku Isaki at Yale that really nicely showed that the timing of when you generate antibodies, not the type of antibodies you make or how well they work, the timing early on is the biggest risk factor for developing COVID. If you are late developer, you will get severe COVID. If you develop them early, you will most likely not get severe COVID. And so that's the reason why these B-cell clean therapies totally make sense. But the JAK inhibitors to a certain extent also make sense. And this is, we're going to, this we're going to make an assumption that people are going to watch this, are going to be sophisticated in a way that we can have this open discussion the way we're thinking about it. Because interferons, which are basically antiviral proteins created by the immune system, its activity is blocked partially by these JAK inhibitors. So again, the story is the same. That very, one of the earliest immune observations was that if you had good interferon responses early, you're able to control disease. You had poor interferon responses early, then you weren't able to control disease and you were higher chances of developing severe COVID. So all of this, I think, is really reassuring. It actually is critical because a lot of the early mechanistic studies were very, very small ends of people. So we really needed a validation and a much larger population. And so Jeff's work, you know, applause, uh, was really, is really critical to really cinching this entire argument. But also, you know, COVID-19 has an unexpected, you know, increased inflammatory environment state at the late stage. And so that's also then the reason why anti-inflammatories seem to be effective late stage. So that's, again, it's, it's complicated because it's not just one box. You know, it's two boxes within another larger box, right? They operate somewhat independently of one another. So that's the complicating feature when you're trying to, you know, colloquialize that. 
actually, Jeff, it just as an FYI, we just yesterday, our organization in partnership with UR Paré and groups in COVID and, you know, international scale, we launched the pathway of patient engagement in rheumatology research and, and the pit and the stop on the pathway of 2012 was the innovation of the COVID-19 GRA. And we actually linked to the presentation on the abstract. So it made the pathway as, as, a, as an, in, because, you know, the, the whole patient collaboration of the GRA. So I'll make sure that, but we just launched that yesterday and I wanted to make sure that, that you all knew that and, and we'll for sure link to these. And then I just wanted to also just kind of ask, since we're on this thing of communication, you know, I know as a person living with the disease, there's so many questions still. I think we're nowhere near at the end of the conversation with COVID vaccines because now we're starting to hear, do we have to have a booster? And, you know, the, these conversations are coming up um, as, you know, patients and, and rheumatologists, what should we like be preparing for coming into these visits? Are there any Anything that you all are suggesting that we start to prepare for? I mean, there's just so many still unknowns, I guess. So as we're talking about communication, if you have any recommendations for us or for people out there to prepare for this continued evolution of COVID and vaccination. Yeah, I, I think we have to still be patient. Answers will be coming out soon. You know, I'm still actually, you know, so this goes all the way back to whether or not you can get tested for antibodies. Because I think that's the kind of the core, the very first step that then leads to a lot of things downstream. And I'm still in the position where I feel like that the results are inactionable. The, if you have antibodies, while they're very important, many immunosuppressives also affect many other aspects of the immune system. So there is a theoretical risk that has not been demonstrated by the theoretical risk that even if you have antibodies, you still may not have optimal protection. All right, so there's that. But then flip side, which is going to be the of bigger concern to people is if I don't have responses, then what do I do? And the problem is that, you know, there's no, there isn't any actionable thing that we can do because, you know, if you're going to get prophylactic monoclonal antibodies, as Jeff had proposed earlier, you know, a few months ago, you know, the problem is that they're still under an EUA or emergency use authorization from the FDA, which substantially restricts its use outside of its indicated or approved usage. And the same thing with boosters. Again, that's also all the vaccines are still also under an EUA. So, but I know that I have some patients that have gotten boosters on their own because they lied about whether they got vaccinated in the first place. You know, so this that shouldn't be surprising. That shouldn't be surprising. Don't ask. Don't tell. Right. Yeah. This shouldn't be surprising to anyone, right? A, we're humans, but B, and this is the reason why we're still advocating not to get tested is that, you know, people will act on their own if they believe something strong enough. I mean, hydroxychloroquine wasn't that long ago. This is a really good example where inadequate information about how well it worked was completely overwhelmed by the narrative of its potential. Right. And people then conflated or basically substituted that potential for the actual information, right? Because there was an actionable item that you could do with that at the end. And people feel like that, I don't know why, that we have to act on everything. And so this is going, this could lead to misadventures amongst the patients when, and I already know that I have a couple of patients that even tried to look for immune boosters on the internet, you know, whatever supplements or additives, which obviously is interesting because 
we're not trying to necessarily boost their immune system because that's what's actually causing their disease in the first place. So again, it's being able to think through those things. But again, the emotional aspect of what COVID has done, you know, has really even, you know, probably accelerated the need to act on something, right? And that could lead to negative outcomes. And so this is, again, goes back to, you know, even getting tested, unless you have a level head and can just say, okay, I know I'm not, I don't have antibodies. I'm just going to sit here and wait until we know what we need to do that can be safe and effective. I, I think this is, again, this is human behavior to me. You all the time as, as providers too with patients and then making decisions about what they want to do about their, their disease. That isn't necessarily an option that we had discussed. Right. Right. You know, this happens all the time. So we just have to be ready for when certain trends then become more than just little pockets of interest and become actual fads. That's really scary. And actually, some of the ones that you know that actually went and got vaccinated again, did they get vaccinated with the same product or did they go to a different one? Most, well, I mean, this is going to be very state dependent. In Missouri, we're still pretty dominated by Pfizer. So most of the time it's that. I will say for boosters, there is, and I don't know how much, 100% if this is public domain knowledge, but there is discussion about a booster trial through the NIH for uh, rheumatic disease patients on select immunosuppressives. And so the protocol hasn't been finalized yet to my knowledge. So that's part of the reason why no one's really heard about it. But this is something we're certainly going to be participating in and essentially is going to be certain diseases and certain specific type of medications such as rituximab and then giving them a booster, but it may not be the same. It may be what we call heterologous. So basically it could be different. So they're actually setting up arms where a third will get Pfizer, a third will get Moderna, a third will get J&J, regardless of what you got before. Yeah. All right. And then be able to follow up for about a year. It is interesting, though. I mean, and Jeff, this is, these are the type of discussions Jeff and I would have over probably the starting the third or fourth cocktail. <laughs> um, this is like the actual ULAR experience now. Yeah, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but that's got to be next because yeah. this is like the second time we've, the, the, yeah. the, the Al and Jeff and I have been doing, uh, we were on a, we put the cocktails came up and I said, we can arrange that. We oh, they always come up. Debrief. Yeah. <laughs> As an aside, that's an important part of these meetings. A lot of times future directions, collaborations, studies get mapped out, you know, after hours. Yeah. Yeah. A A talk or a poster, you're just like, you know, I don't understand it or this is really interesting. Could it actually be true? You know, it's interesting because rituximab in general is, you know, considered to be a really safe drug and there's no increased risk of serious infections with it compared to, you know, many other therapies. And it's just interesting to note that in this very specific environment, of course, few vaccine studies have been done, but rituximab was obviously a big problem. But it's just interesting to see now how my own perception about B cell depletion has changed quite a bit over this past year. And but it's a problem because I like using Rituxx a lot in African Americans with lupus, for example. I think it's still very effective. So this has become kind of a I'm trying to reconcile. I'm trying to unpack all this. Like what is then what's my next thing I'm going to do? Like, do I continue to prescribe it? Do I continue to you know, counsel patients that in general, it's safe, but COVID, right. you know, is, yeah. is a problem. And that, Again, that goes you know, right back to the, the whole shared decision-making too. What is the patient? I mean, do they want What are their benefit risks when you're talking about that? An interest of time. And I know Jeff has this, this super duper big um, <laughs> 
deadline as well. Is there anything else that you wanted to add to that, Jeff, about this whole conversation with COVID and patients and being able to prepare for the new wave, I guess, of, mm -hmm. of visits? <laughs> well, it feels like there's been the waves of COVID from rheumatologist perspective are early in the pandemic, what do I do with my meds? And then it was, what about the first vaccine? Then it was, can I get antibodies checked? And now it's going to be, can I get a booster? So <laughs> that's the four waves with the, yeah. from a rheumatologist perspective of the discussions we've had over the past year and a half. And they're just going to keep what we don't know yeah. what, the, yeah. <laughs> what the next one is. I'm going to just mention, I just wanted to do a, a shout out and thank you for support from J&J Jansen. We did, our organization did re just receive a grant for shared decision-making and mm. helping patients when it comes to COVID and vaccination decisions. So there you go. I think that we have, in the first ever, we've been doing these go-to conferences. We do this for the ACR and for ULAR. We've been doing them for a couple of years now. First time we, we've had other stakeholders other than patients come and, and join us. So we really want to thank you both. That's what we like to do, though, as an organization all stakeholders at the table having conversations because mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to really solve problems. So well, thank I, you for the invite. It's always fun. Yes. I know. This whole COVID thing, it's just the matter of just being patient. And I think I was on lockdown for so long and comfortable doing it, but it's time to start to, you know, again, still hand washing and all that stuff, but get back to life a little. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But so, thank you guys so much. This was really great to have you guys here. Thanks for having us. And for everyone else, we still have a couple different debriefs that we're going to wrap up for you, Laura, that'll be published. And then we will call it a wrap and continue with the debriefs when we go to ACR <laughs> in November. So I'm going to, to stop the recording here. And um, thank you all. We'll make sure that we post the links uh, with this with this post as well to the wonderful research that said. So signing off from you, Laura. And there you go. That was such an amazing conversation. I mean, we all lived through COVID. We've all, you know, been living through the vaccinations now. We have this issue with the boosters and there's just so much that we still have to know and learn about. And we really do hope at AI Arthritis that we're able to keep you in the loop, keep you in these conversation tables with these amazing people who are doing so much in the community and to help you in your shared decision-making process when you're talking to your families, to your doctors about your healthcare plan when it comes to COVID, vaccinations, and well after all of that. So we will definitely be starting that here soon. And if you want to watch the entire video uncut of this go-to ULAR that we have, you can go to our YouTube channel and we will have that link listed for you. And it is the go-to ULAR series debrief number six. So you can check out the whole uncut version if you'd like. Also, if you are interested in going with us to conferences, if you're a person living with these diseases, we always take people with us. And it's pretty amazing experience. You can learn more about that by going to our website, aiarthritis.org backslash conferences. And you could also find this and all of our episodes on the same website backslash talk show. And hey, while you're on there, why not give 
a little push on that big red button that says donate, because only when we have support for our community can we continue the work we're doing and all of these activities to help make sure that your experience and the experience of people around you living with the diseases or stakeholders that are relevant to a patient experience so that we all have the opportunity to really continue to come to the table and solve problems together that are going to impact our community and improve outcomes. So thank you so much for joining in the show. You can also find us on social media at IFAI Arthritis on all of our channels. Until next time, I certainly hope that you'll comment, tell us your thoughts, pull up your own seat at the table, because again, only together can we solve the problems of tomorrow. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 